From The Conversation, this is Politics with Michelle Grattan, a podcast where we hear from politicians and experts on the issues of the day. Jim Chalmers has released his white paper on employment this week. Its aim is for everyone who wants a job to be able to get one without having to search for too long. That's full employment. The paper says that a surprisingly large number of people are looking for work or for more hours of work, up to some 3 million. And that's when unemployment is at a low 3.7% and we have labour shortages all around the place. Today we have Jim Chalmers to talk with us about some of the issues in the white paper. Jim Chalmers, how is it that all these people are looking for work or for more hours when we have this low unemployment rate and labour market shortages? What's the story here? Yeah, well, first of all, Michelle, I think it is good to recognise that the labour market has been really resilient. Uh, I think the most stunning indication of that uh, is since we started measuring unemployment month to month uh, in 1978, 45 years ago, There's only been 18 times where unemployment's had a three in front of it, and 15 of those times have been under this Prime Minister Albanese. Uh, So we start from a position of genuine strength. But as you rightly say in your question, uh, there are still people looking for more work or for more hours. A couple of ways to understand that. First of all, the unemployment rate's not the whole story. Uh, There are other indications around underutilisation and other uh, data that we talk about in the white paper on jobs and opportunities. Uh, but also a lot of people confront barriers uh, to working or to working more. And that's why really a, a big feature, a key focus of the white paper is how do we make it easier for people to grab the opportunities of a changing economy, uh, which is creating jobs, um, but we need to get better at hooking people up to them. And obviously, this is going to extend across a number of areas. For example, we've got the Royal Commission on Disability tabled today. A lot of people in the disabled sector will need help to get more work. Absolutely. Um, And, you know, I pay tribute to to Bill Shorten and Amanda Rishworth for the work that they're doing alongside this Royal Commission. Um, And again, if if your listeners read the the employment white paper, there is a big focus um, on how do we make it easier for people to overcome barriers to work. And those barriers might be disability, uh, they might be uh, caring responsibilities. Uh, Frequently it's about um, communities where there is entrenched and often intergenerational disadvantage and that's a bit personal for me because I represent communities like that and in lots of ways one of the reasons I'm here and certainly one of the motivations for the white paper is because we need to, to bust up this cycle of intergenerational disadvantage and long-term unemployment. So there are barriers uh, to people uh, being beneficiaries of the big changes underway in our economy and our society and we want to make it easier for people to grab those opportunities. One particular area of disadvantage is uh, Indigenous communities, especially those away from the major population uh, centres from towns and so on out in the outback. Have you any particular strategy to try to deal with that challenge? Yeah, really, I think two things are really important here, Michelle. Uh, One of the specific announcements we made when we released the white paper uh, was about a genuine partnership between the government and the Coalition of Peaks, an economic partnership, uh, which is all about uh, working out the specific challenges in 
uh, First Nations communities, but particularly, as you rightly say, in remote communities. And, and really, the whole white paper tries to say, look, when we've got unemployment low in aggregate across the country, when we've got all of these opportunities in aggregate, how do we get much better about thinking about specific communities and First Nations communities are obviously a big part of that. So there's the economic partnership with the Coalition of Peaks. There's also the way that we uh, are reforming CDP. Linda Burney's leading that work. Uh, But the voice is important here as well, you know, because whether it's jobs policy or other kinds of policies, we need to move away from making policy for First Nations people and move towards making policy with First Nations people. Uh, And that applies to the labour market, just as it applies to all of the other ways that we want to close the gap in health, uh, incarceration, education and the like. I just should explain for our listeners, the Coalition of Peaks is a representative body that covers a very large number of Indigenous organisations. Now, just returning to the general on employment, do you think that our employment agencies need a shake-up? The system was privatised decades ago. Has that worked? Is it working? Oh, I don't think it's working as it as it should uh, or as well as it can. Um, and you know, I pay tribute here to my colleagues, Julian Hill, who's doing an important piece of committee work on this, but also Tony Burke, the responsible minister. Uh, we recognise that employment services, you know, aren't doing as good a job as we want them to. And so what we've done in the employment white paper is to say, here are eight principles. I won't read them all out for your listeners, but eight principles that we will rely on to reform the system. Julian, Tony, myself, Uh, and other ministers are working to reform employment services along the lines of these eight uh, principles. But our objective here is really to think about it in terms of how do we invest in people's opportunities and their capacity, their capability to uh, grasp the opportunities of a of a labour market which has been relatively strong. And for lots of reasons, uh, too many to go into here, but for lots of reasons, the system has been falling short and that's why we want to change it. But we're doing it in a really methodical, really considered way and we thought the best way to give people a sense of where that's headed is to outline the eight principles that we'll build the new system on. In the paper, you define full employment as everybody who wants to to get a, a job being able to do so in a reasonable time without too much delay. Did you consider putting a number on the unemployment rate that represents full employment? Why did you decide not to publish such a number? The Keating White Paper on employment in 1994, for example, had a target of cutting unemployment from the then 10% to 5% by the year 2000. Yeah. No, I understand that. Uh, People have raised this uh, in the week or so since we we released the White Paper. I think there's a few things I'd say about that. Yeah, first of all, um, there is a... There is a technical assumption about full employment called the non-accelerating inflation rate of unemployment, the NARU, and that's a, an important uh, assumption. It's a it's a necessary number that feeds you know, forecasts in budgets and the work of the Reserve Bank. But that is distinct, uh, but complementary uh, to how we talk about full employment in the white paper. And the reason why we've tried to broaden it out and talked about sustained and inclusive full employment, a new definition of full employment, is because, as I said earlier, this isn't just about the unemployment rate. It's about underutilisation. It's about underemployment. It's about concentrated areas of long-term unemployment. Uh, And so we've tried to broaden out these considerations uh, rather than say the be-all and end-all is one number. Uh, And the other important thing here, the other reason why we haven't gone down the path 
that you describe in your question uh, is because we want to drive down full employment over time. You know, there's a there's a near term consideration, uh, but in the medium term and in the longer term, a lot of the investment we talk about in the white paper is about trying to get unemployment lower, as low as we can, but consistent with all of the other pressures in our economy. So one static number wouldn't really do the job. It's a, a range of measures uh, and it's an aspiration over time to create uh, sufficient opportunities so that everyone who wants a job can find one without looking for too long. Business representatives have said that the initiatives in the white paper will be overwhelmed by the government's proposed changes to industrial relations. How do you respond to this and why was relatively little said about industrial relations issues in the paper? Uh, well, first of all, I don't, I don't accept that uh, we went light on uh, describing our changes to industrial relations. I think in a number of places in the white paper, uh, you can see where we've talked about job security or getting wages moving again or the gig economy. You know, these are all important parts of our industrial relations strategy. So I'm not sure that that critique, obviously, I've heard it. Obviously, I listen respectfully when people have got views about the work that we've done here, but I don't accept or agree that industrial relations is absent. It's uh, in lots of ways kind of central. But I think just as importantly, um, you know, if you look at the feedback from the major business groups, which has been caricatured as, you know, focused almost exclusively on industrial relations, that's not been the experience. I mean, the, the head of Aki said this is an important strategy, no doubt about it backed in our approach to uh, full employment, talked about our approach to productivity, you know, quite positive about it. Uh, the BCA uh, said that the white papers areas are well targeted to deliver sustained employment growth, uh, job security and productivity. They talked about the synergies between their work and, and my work in this paper. Uh, the AIG said it's an important blueprint. Uh, to design to equip ourselves for the future. And I could go on, but I won't. My point is here, Michelle, the business community, which I work closely with, uh, and I appreciate and I'm grateful for all the ways that we do that, collaborate very closely. Uh, they've been quite positive overall about the employment white paper. They haven't been focused exclusively on the areas where there's not unanimity in industrial relations. Uh, and I really welcome the quite positive feedback that we've had from them. Now, we're getting a detailed policy on migration soon, but there are a couple of questions I'd like to explore with you on this. The net migration intake is running well ahead of the forecast. Is this a problem, especially given the acute housing shortage we confront? Well, the, the net overseas migration figure is historically high, um, and that's largely a consequence of two things. First of all, the international students are coming back uh, much faster than was anticipated uh, after COVID. And secondly, we are an incredibly attractive destination for people on tourist visas. So the students and the tourists are driving uh, that uh, higher than usual number. And both of those things uh, are good for our economy in the sense that they feed our services exports. And so that's important. Uh, I think one of the things that people don't understand about the net overseas migration number is it's, it's demand-driven. It's, it's not a government target. It's not a government policy to hit a certain number. It is a consequence of those students and the tourists, uh, and it's a net figure. And so uh, what we need to do is to make sure that we can manage pressure on our population. That's what we're doing. I mean, that's one of the big reasons why housing has become 
you know, one of the top handful of priorities for the government, billions of dollars flowing into investing in affordable housing. Uh, and that's because if we want all of the benefits of migration, being an attractive place for people to live, uh, then we've got to make sure that we manage those pressures wisely. And that's what we're doing. That's what our housing policy is about. The employment white paper goes to it and Claire O'Neill's migration strategy will go to that as well. The government's emphasis is on attracting high-skilled migrants, yet a lot of our labour shortages are in semi-skilled or even unskilled work, for example, in aged care, even in the building industry. So how do you deal with this problem? Uh, Well, the migration strategy that Claire O'Neill is putting together does go uh, to some of these issues. And aged care, in fact, has been already, even before the release of that overarching strategy, it's been a big priority for us. Uh, and in building as well. And so I think what people will see, and I don't want to kind of front run or preempt Claire's really great work on this, but the migration strategy is largely an economic strategy. It's about making sure that the migration system works for us in our interests. And part of that is making sure that we're filling uh, the needs of workers uh, in areas where they are genuinely needed, but also not treating that as a substitute for training. You know, the employment white paper has got a big focus on training and education, lifelong learning, retraining, reskilling, and that's our highest priority. But the migration system's got a role to play here, not as a substitute for training, uh, but as a way to make it complementary, and that's the approach that Claire's taking. One of your goals is to reignite productivity, and of course you're overhauling the Productivity Commission. But is this getting harder to do in an increasingly uh, service-dominated economy? There's much less scope for productivity improvement in areas like hairdressing or aged care than in manufacturing. I think it's harder to measure uh, productivity in these some of these industries, the services sector, and you know, we know from the generational report and the employment white paper that we expect workers, for example, in the care and support economy, the need for those workers is going to absolutely explode as our population ages. And it is harder to measure productivity in those areas, but that doesn't make it any less important. And so, so much of our training agenda, uh, so much of what we're investing in terms of participation, all of that uh, is to try and make sure that uh, our whole economy, but particularly sectors where we're going to get lots of growth, that they are as productive and innovative, as competitive as possible. How we adapt and adopt technology is crucial to that. How we manage the energy transformation is crucial to that. But I think most of all, how we invest in people, how we invest in the stocks of human capital in this country uh, will go a long way to determining whether we can make these growing sectors of the economy, including the services sector, uh, more productive uh, so that people can get you know, higher wages and lift living standards uh, overall in our economy. What happens to the economy also depends on what happens elsewhere outside Australia. You've been worried about developments in China over recent months, the slowing of the Chinese economy. What's your latest thinking and information on this? Well, I'm still quite concerned about China. I think um, you you would uh, expect me to sort of maintain uh, a hierarchy of concerns about our global economy and our domestic economy. And I think in the global economy, China's really number one for me at the moment. There are challenges in their property sector in particular. Uh, we've seen a really quite a substantial slowing across a range of indicators in the Chinese economy. And that has big consequences for us, of course, uh, in a world where uh, China uh, plays such a big role in our prospects. And so I'm still concerned about it. 
Uh, I monitor the Chinese economy very closely, as does the Treasury, as do all the private sector players that we talk to. Uh, and it remains uh, an ongoing concern. I'm confident that the authorities there know that they've got a problem. Uh, and you hear in dispatches um, the different sorts of considerations that that might bring the Chinese government. But overall, China's still a big concern. It's something that we monitor incredibly closely. You've just announced a $22 billion surplus for last financial year. The budget projects deficits for uh, this financial year and continuing on. But surely now, realistically, there's a good chance of a surplus this financial year, isn't there? Oh, it genuinely remains to be seen, Michelle. Um, and revenue in the budget's really unpredictable at the moment for a couple of reasons. I mean, first of all, We've seen a bit of a recovery in some of our commodity prices, but uh, they have actually been underneath uh, forecast trajectory uh, for a little while earlier in the year. And so how that all kind of nets out uh, remains to be seen. Revenue is a bit unpredictable. Um, and also there's good reasons to be conservative about all of this. You know, our economy is slowing considerably as a consequence of China and the impact of the rate rises, which began before the election. Uh, and that has implications for revenue and for the budget as well. And so uh, I would prefer to be careful uh, and cautious and conservative about revenue, really all of the time. That's the approach I take, but especially when the global and domestic economy is so unpredictable and that has consequences for the prices the world pays our goods and services. There's increasing pressure at the moment, of course, given higher petrol prices and uh, people's uh, grocery bills going up and so on, to spend more money. Uh, we're hearing calls uh, all over the place for extra help for households. You're resisting this. How do you justify that? Well, the point I'm making is that we are right now rolling out billions of dollars in cost of living help, um, and that's because we recognise that people are under extreme pressure uh, right now, and that's why you know, we've been able to get the budget in better, Nick, but that hasn't come at the expense of uh, rolling out, you know, whether it's uh, help with energy bills or taking the edge off out-of-pocket health costs, uh, the biggest increase in Commonwealth rent assistance in 30 years, really so many different ways we're trying to roll out this cost of living help to take some of the edge off inflation without adding to it. And so that's our focus. That's still rolling out right now. Uh, and that's an important part of helping people to deal with it. Uh, we've also got to uh, ensure uh, that we can afford whatever assistance we're providing. And last year, we are able to get the budget in better nick and provide that assistance, but the pressures on the budget are actually intensifying rather than easing, whether it's aged care or Medicare, uh, defence, the NDIS, uh, the interest bill on our debt. Uh, we need to make sure that we're managing the economy in the most responsible way. We've struck a good balance to here on cost of living help as well as improving the budget position. Uh, and that's our focus right now, rolling that help out uh, in future budgets if uh, there's room uh, to do more or if there's a case to do more, obviously we consider that then. But for now, our focus is on the cost of living relief that we've already budgeted for. This week, we saw the monthly uh, inflation numbers tick up. Uh, do you think that people should be worried about another interest rate rise uh, now or later? Oh, as you know, Michelle, you know, I try not to um, predict or preempt the decisions that the Reserve Bank takes independently, um, but what they would typically do uh, is they would look at the overall direction of travel when it comes to inflation. And, yes, 
there was a tick up in that monthly number, but those monthly numbers are notoriously volatile. Uh, they can get lumpy. And so what they would do is they'd see that quarterly inflation peaked before the election last year. It peaked in annual terms around Christmas time. The overall direction of travel has been that inflation is moderating. And I would anticipate that they would factor all of that in, including, you know, a really quite a weak retail figure that we got this week as well. So they will factor all of that in. But the other thing which is really important here, and none of your listeners who've got a mortgage need reminding of this, but the interest rate rises that are already in the system uh, are biting quite hard in our economy. You see that in the consumption figures, you see it in retail, you see it in household saving. And so the Reserve Bank, when they look at this and take their decision independently, they will weigh all of those things up and not just uh, one monthly inflation figure, which was driven largely uh, by petrol prices as a consequence of some of the global suppliers pulling back on production. Jim Chalmers, I just want to finish up by going back to the employment white paper and putting to you a somewhat uh, contrarian point of view when we're thinking about encouraging more employment people to work longer. Do you think there's a case to be uh, made that people are actually working too much in other words, they need jobs, obviously, but when we talk about more and more hours, more and more participation, this is good for economic growth, but beyond a certain point, are there social and other costs from everyone working so much? Oh, of course there are. And what we're really trying to do here is to give people choices. You know, people are best placed to work out what is the best combination of their work responsibilities and family responsibilities and how do they you know, work enough and earn enough to provide for their loved ones. And what we're talking about here, whether it's our changes to early childhood education or the way that we think about investing in skills or really right across the board, including making it easier for older people to work a little bit more if they want to, not forcing them, but giving them that choice. All of these things really are about helping people make the best choice that they can for their own situation. Uh, and obviously it's concerning when so many people have to work so many jobs uh, in order to provide for their loved ones, uh, and so we want to make sure that jobs are not just secure but that people are fairly paid uh, so that they get decent reward for their effort, uh, and that all comes back to uh, giving people the choices and the capability uh, and the skills uh, to do the best thing for, the, for themselves and for their loved ones. And that's a, a pretty good summary of what we're trying to do in the white paper. Jim Chalmers, thanks very much for making time to catch up with us today. It's been a big week for you because you've been travelling around uh, Queensland, selling the message and getting in touch with uh, people's feedback, no doubt. That's all for today's Politics Podcast. Thank you to my producer, Mikey Burnett. We'll be back with another interview soon, but goodbye for now. Our theme music is by Lee Rosevere. You can find more podcasts from The Conversation on our website at theconversation.com.